So Matthew chapter 18, 20, that's today's verse that we're going to try to untwist. Here's what it says. You saw it in that video. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. Now, I'm sure you've heard this if you've been in the church long enough. Because Christians quote this verse when they're praying in a group or they're praying in a church. They're invoking the thought that when two or more Christians are together to pray, then it is extra powerful and it's going to bend God's will to them. It's almost like, okay, we're going to get God on our side as long as we've got a quorum, as long as we've got two or three Christians together. If you're by yourself on a deserted island and you need help, just expect delays. But if you've got two or three of you on that island that are stranded and you pray and, and you say amen, look, your eyes are going to open and there's a Coast Guard cutter anchored offshore. And that's the mentality that you get into when you approach this scripture wrongly. We're going to try to straighten this. And every week we've seen you have to reconnect it to the context. Now that's true in everything in life. If you don't know the context, you're going to, re you're going to interpret it wrongly. So as you look at Matthew 18, I'm trusting you've got your Bibles open. You're not looking at Pokemon Go, right? You're not Facebooking. Unless you're going to Facebook and message, hey, there's something profound that I just heard. Put it on Facebook. But you're not checking your friends. You're not checking your, your news lines. Okay, you're going to be in Matthew 18. We're going to be in it together. We're going to work through the chapter together. And I'm going to tell you what John MacArthur, he's a Bible teacher in, in Texas... I'm going to tell you what he said of chapter 18. He said, it's the single greatest sermon or discourse our Lord ever gave on life among the redeemed people in his church. In other words, he's saying this is the greatest message from Jesus on how to live church. I would have to agree with that. I think it's incredibly riveting and it's incredibly hard hitting. And what Jesus is doing, and we're going to look at this in just a moment, what he's doing is he's engaging his followers in what we call discipleship. He's making disciples. Now, I want you to look up here for a moment. I'm going to get you in Matthew 18 in just a moment. But look up here for a moment because I want you to understand what discipleship is. What does it mean to make Disciples. Now listen, I want, you to, I want you to hear this because every believer is commanded by Christ to make disciples. Not just pastors and elders, not just those who have been in the church for a long time or been Christians for a long time. This is a command to every Christian. So what's it mean? And I think, I think Paul from Colossians defines it best. Here's what he says. Jesus we proclaim... Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he works, that he powerfully works within me. I think that's what discipleship is. It is coming alongside people with everything that's inside of you. And helping to present them mature in Christ. So we could say that discipleship is the process of laboring in the power of God to help people come to know Jesus and then grow up in him, grow mature in him. 
And this is what Matthew 18 is about. So we got Matthew 18. Jesus is about to teach how we are to love each other in the church. And through that, how we help each other grow spiritually mature. And look at verse 1. Growing spiritually mature is desperately needed in his own disciples. Look what happens, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. Now, quick break. Look at me. I know that's annoying, but you got to get your bearings. At that time, they're in Capernaum. They're up in Galilee. That's 70 miles up above Jerusalem. And he had just gone up on top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John and changed, transformed, or transfigured before them. His glory, which was veiled by his humanity, was unveiled. He was radiant, the very radiance, Shekinah glory of God the Father. They saw that. James, Peter, and John, Peter and John saw that glory of the Father radiating in Jesus. Right after that, he begins, to, he begins to teach his disciples again what is going to happen to him. He's going to die for the sins of the world. So at that time, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus. It's right in the middle of this, right after this. And they say to him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and let, me, let me change that just a little bit because they're going to do this again the night before he's crucified. Right in the upper room. The same problem, the same drive. Who, who of us is the greatest? That's what they're asking. Which of us, Jesus will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, they're greatly in need of discipleship. They're greatly in need of maturity in Christ because this is going to create this pride and arrogance, a problem in the church, a problem in their community. So what he does is this. It's stunning. He brings a little child into their midst, right into the midst of the group, and look at it, follow along with me, and he tells them that no one can come into the, into the kingdom of God, no one can be saved, that's what that means, no one can be saved if they do not humbly see their need, like a little child, their need for salvation. He's pointing out this child, child's a metaphor for them, you got to be like a child. you got to recognize your need. You've got to come. And let me, let, me, let me give you a word picture like my children have done, all four of them, when they were young. You've got to come to the Father with your hands up. Nothing to barter with, just simply knowing that he's going to love you. He's going to bend down. He's going to forgive you through Christ, and he's going to give you eternal life. That's the faith of a child who is humble. You've got to come to God like that. Now look at verse 5 and 6. Now what we're doing is we're finding the context. We're going to get to verse 18. That's our twisted scripture. Verse 20 rather. We're going to get there. But look at verses 5 and 6. They're misunderstood. There's a lot of twisted scriptures in this chapter. Some people think that, wow, you know, look at, look at the incredible love that Jesus has for children. And they use this verse these two verses to underscore the high value of a children's ministry in a church. I've heard them. I've, I've heard people preach on this to confirm and to give a reason why you've got to start a children's ministry in your church. I've heard people use these verses to fuel their, their opinion 
that people who hurt children, people who harm children, are going to have a special wrath from Jesus. They're going to have a, a hotter place in hell. And these are the two verses they use to prove that. And listen, while it's true that God loves children, and while it's true that nobody ever should harm a child, and while it's true a children's ministry is really important, you can't get there, you can't get to any of those three through these verses. That's not what they mean. Little ones, look at verse 6. Now you ready? Hunt with me on the context. Look at verse 6. Little ones, look at verse 10, look at verse 14. All three verses have little ones in it. And what that refers to are children of the Heavenly Father, Christians, not biological kids. Now, I just straightened that out for you. This is imperative that you understand this because this is going to get us to the context. Little ones is about Christians who are children of the Heavenly Father. It's about the church. What Jesus is going to teach is about the church caring for each other as God's children so that we can grow mature in him. This is what this chapter is about. And we should do all that we can, verse 5, look what it says, to receive our brothers and sisters into our care, into our church, into our fellowship. And do nothing, verse 6, to cause them to stumble into sin. Look what he, he gives a warning in verse 6. Anyone that causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. He's referring to a lifestyle that leads another Christian into sin, not just a single indiscretion. He's talking about a lifestyle, a belief system that draws young believers into sin. And in verse 7, he warns that the world is full of temptation. The world wants your faith to fail. So we've got to help each other in the church. We've got to work with each other to overcome those temptations, not hinder spiritual growth. And then he moves to verses 8 and 9. He's not encouraging, by the way, self-mutilation. There's people down through the history of the church that have flagellated their backs and their thighs. They've pierced their, their wrists with nails. They've actually gouged out their eyes trying to, to literally follow these verses. This is not about self-mutilation. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that all of us, all of his children, all of his disciples must seriously pursue holiness in our lives. You've got to get rid of whatever makes us stumble. Listen, if there's something in your life that's making you stumble, these verses are telling us you've got to get rid of it. You've got to do whatever you can to get rid of it. I had a friend of mine not too long ago tell me that every once in a while he gets in the email with a direct TV package that HBO and Cinemax are gonna give you a, they're gonna give you a free weekend of it. And every time the temptation to stay up late and see what's on after dark rages through him. So I said, Do you have anybody? Now listen, guys, girls, listen, do you have anyone? I asked him that you call when you first feel those temptations. Because if you wait until it rages, you're almost always going to lose. You've got to immediately take hold of this. Who do you call? And he says, I have nobody. I said, will you promise to call me? Will you promise to call me the very moment that temptation comes? He says, yes. And I said, well, then I'm going to pray that you get in a biking accident if you don't do that. Isn't that terrible? Listen, drastic times call for drastic measures. Amen? 
You know, there was nobody that amened that. <laughs> so verses 8 and 9, listen, it's not about self-mutilation. You know why? You can pluck out your eye and still sin. And you can cut off one of your hands and you're still going to sin. Sin originates from the heart. The eye is the vehicle. The hand is the mechanism. But the heart is the engine. So he's not telling you to cut off limbs, to gouge out eyes. He's saying, listen, treat it seriously. Pursue holiness. And look what he says in verse 10. We're not to despise one of these little ones, not biological kids, but Christians. Not looking down on other believers with arrogant contempt. Believing that someone is not worth our time and our care because God loves them. Look what he writes. He has angels whose jobs it is to watch and care for Christians. Now be careful. I'm going to untwist something. This doesn't mean, Clarence, that there is a guardian angel for every Christian. That's not what it teaches. The Bible nowhere says that. But it does say that God has messengers, angelic beings, that speak for him, that protect us, that work around us, that minister to us. And this is their job because God ministers to his children with angelic beings. God loves his children so much, verse 12. That if one of us, now listen, you've done this probably, I've got somebody I was just on the phone with before I came out here to church. Who I've been ministering to for years. And right now he's in the middle of the country on a job assignment and he says, you know what, I'm done with that blankety blank Christianity stuff. I'm done. I said, well let me pray for you because you got a big thing coming up on Monday. He goes, no, I don't want you to pray. I don't even believe in that anymore. Listen, if somebody walks away, if somebody goes astray, if God's child, if one of his children walks away, look at verse 12. This is comforting. Look what God does. He does not leave, or does he not rather leave the 99 on the mountains, 99 sheep on the mountains, and go in search of the one that went astray. He pursues us. And he gives, now listen, this is the big part because we're almost at context. And he gives the church, that would be you and I, Christian brother and sister, he gives the church the responsibility to care for them. Now, did you hear that? How the church does this, how the church cares for those who sin, those who go astray, how the church cares for them is what Jesus is about to teach, and we're going to find our, our verse in this teaching. So let's slow down a little bit, and let's look at it deeply. Here's three things, or two things. The second one's not on your outline. I'll give it to you when we get there. Here's the first one. The way we help each other overcome sin. This is a statement. He's going to teach the way we help each other overcome sin. Now, let me prepare you for this, because I'm going to need to prepare you. I've been in ministry for a long, long time, over 23 years, and I've got to tell you, one of the things that I have seen over and over is a failure to obey what we're about to learn. And it creates divisions and it breaches relationships all over the church. My goal in untwisting this 
is that never again can anybody in this church say, I did not know what I was supposed to do. You're going to know it by the end of this message. When somebody offends you, when somebody sins against you, how do you respond? You have a responsibility. And I have a responsibility. Or we're going to watch Jesus teach it. Number one, go privately. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now listen, you know that's not a male-only gender uh, word. It's him or her, so I just need to say that. Go tell him or her his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now you might want to know this. In the earliest manuscripts, there's lots of manuscripts, several of them, that were found in the original Greek that we get the New Testament translated from. In the original, or in the earliest, rather, manuscripts, the phrase against you was not found in a lot of them. It's found in some of them, not all of them. So it may have originally been in there, or it may not have been. It doesn't change the way Jesus tells us to respond when somebody sins. We are to go to that person. Now listen, this is so ridiculously difficult for a lot of us. When someone sins, and let's put against you in it for context. When someone sins against you, you are to go, I am to go to that person. Now let me say this really quickly. And I shouldn't have to say this, but I think I have to. I had somebody really angry at me years ago. Here's why they were angry at me. I've had lots of people angry at me. I'm, I'm kind of a, um, an irritant in a lot of people's lives. No amen on that one either. But I had somebody angry at me because when I walked past them in the back of the sanctuary as church had just started, I didn't say hello. And they stored up this anger and months later it came flying out and if I remember correctly, they left the church. So we're not talking about accidental offenses. We're not talking about inadvertent offenses. We're talking about sins. We're talking about things that put Jesus on the cross. Because he had to die for it. And if a person sins against you, look what Jesus says. Go to that person and do what no one likes. Look what he writes. Or look what he says, tell him his fault. Now this is linked back to lost sheep who have gone astray. And it is the way that God rescues lost and wandering sheep. He rescues sinning little ones through his loving, personal, truth-telling Christians. Now if you're not a truth-telling Christian, then God sometimes will not be able to use you. Because the methodology of God's Use for the Christians is through speaking the word of God, through speaking truth and showing it in love. You go, you pursue, and if somebody sinned against you, you go, you pursue, you speak directly to that person. Listen, and no one else at this step. There should be nobody else that hears about this. There shouldn't be an elder. There shouldn't be a pastor. There even shouldn't be a wife or a husband yet. There shouldn't be anybody else. Listen, they sinned against you. You go to them privately. This is step one. But you got to examine your heart. 
Is there something else going on in my heart? Did I not like that person? Have I been angry at that person? And that little thing that they did got exponentially amplified and now it's a big sin where maybe in reality it's not that big. Maybe you should swallow it in love. After all, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So this is not a command from Jesus to feel some sick desire to drop the hammer for every sin that anybody ever does. That's not what he's teaching. This is a sin that has the power to breach a relationship, to cause a division in the church. This is a sin that's got to be dealt with or the devil will capitalize on it. Our hearts need to be motivated to help the person to grow in Christ, to overcome that sin. And to neglect going to them is to demonstrate you really don't care about them. You really don't love them. Now listen, I want to drive that in. If you don't go to the person that sins against you, what you're saying is your love does not overcome your fear. It is commonly... This very first step that most Christians stumble over. And it is for a number of reasons. Who am I, we think, to tell them about their sin? I've got my own sins and struggles. Or he or she's just going to blow up. They're going to get mad. And it'll be awkward and uncomfortable. And I'm going to lose a friend. Or we think it's just not going to end very well. It's going to go back to a fruitless debate. And we lodge all of these mental reasons why not to obey Christ. And Jesus is saying, that person sinned. I had to die for it. I'm sending you to them. Look what it says. In order to gain a brother. That's the motive. You want to gain a brother. You don't want to breach. You don't want a division. You don't want to lose the relationship. You want to be able to have input into their life so you can help mature them and help them navigate through life when it starts to fall apart, as all of ours does. You got to go. You got to be clear. You got to be private. You are rescuing. This is a rescue mission. This is the part of discipleship that is... Not really that formalized. You don't need a 10-step a plan. You've got one command. You go and you go to gain your brother and you speak to them about what they did. But if it doesn't work, if step one fails, which it will often do, Jesus knows, which is why he gives us step two. You don't give up. The person's spiritual growth depends on you. You can't wash your hands and say you tried and neglect the process, you move to step two, which is this, go with others. First you go privately, now you go with others. Look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So one or two others who will not take sides. You see, this is what we kind of do. We sort of gather our team I know they're going to side with me because they've told me they've experienced the same thing from that person. So let me get them as my one or two witnesses and the three of us are going to so totally overwhelm that person that they're going to break. They're going to crack. And if they don't, then they're just hard of heart. 
That's not the point. You get a team, you go with others, but it's not a gang that's going to bring overwhelming force, but they're going to implore the sinning believer to listen. Now let me tell you something about witnesses that's going to change your understanding of this a little bit, I think. These witnesses, now listen to this, this is absolutely critical. These witnesses are not always the witnesses to that person's sin. They're witnesses to the process of reconciliation. That the, here's what they do. They make sure that the offended is not falsely accusing the sinner. They put a break on it. They put a limit on it. They make sure to check your heart at the door. They make sure your motives are right. These witnesses have a function. Not only for the first one, not to, to make sure that the offended doesn't trump over and falsely accuse the sinner. They also help the sinner see his sin and repent. And they're public witnesses should it go to the church. See, you're not grabbing your team. You're not trying to get on your team, your witnesses, those that are going to really hammer this person and we're going to win the day. That's not the point of this. These are objective, godly brothers or sisters that will witness to the process of reconciliation. The person's spiritual life is at stake. The witnesses then should be humble, impartial, loving. And skillful peacemakers, like James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to go to step number two with somebody? If God is leading you to do it, then you find godly peacemaking brothers and sisters. But if that doesn't work... And it will often not, you're not done. There's a step three. If he refuses, verse 17, to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now you go to the church. See, the goal in this is to gain your brother or sister, not make them feel like a loser. You're gaining them. You're bringing the straying sheep back into the fold. Because sin has separated. It's created a breach. You're not trying to get a victory in an argument. You're not trying to prove your side of the dispute. You're trying to gain your brother. And the witnesses had the same goal. But it's unsuccessful. Step two. Now the whole church is to gather. And the reason, once again, is to communicate their love for the unrepentant brother or sister. And to appeal to the person to listen and do what is right. It is not to gang up on the sinner with, with incredible force of community. It's to move the sinner to repent of the sin and towards maturity. Now listen, I want you to hear this. God loves us so much. I mean, we sang that. It was the last song we sang in that set. He loves us so much that he'll move an entire church to show his love and mercy to a wayward sheep. I mean, that's amazing. Now, I want you to see the progression. First, if he listens, 
Second verse, if he does not listen. Third, third one, if he refuses to listen. Listen, some people will do that. Some people will not listen. They are caught up in their sin. And they're hard of heart. They're bitter. They're calcitrant. They are not humble. And when those heart-wrenching times come, they won't even listen to the church. It moves the church to its final step. And here's the church's response. Letter D. Verse 17, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, I know we don't think real highly of the IRS, but we don't use tax collector terms very often. We don't use Gentile terms very often. They don't really mean a lot by way of disfavor or angst or dislike. So what is he saying? Well, this is a final step. The person has sinned against a brother or a sister. That person has gone to them to gain them back. The person who sinned did not listen. So two witnesses went with them, one or two, for the purposes of moderating reconciliation, to be a public witness to the church. The person would not listen as they tried to bring them to repentance. So they went to step three. They brought it to the church. And God mobilizes the whole church and says, listen, we love you. We represent God who loves you. We want you to turn from that sin. We want you to come back with us. You need to repent. And the person will not listen even to the church. It leaves only one thing for the church to do. You've got to disfellowship from the person. See, the Jews viewed Gentiles and non-Jewish people as being outside of God's blessings. Outside of his love. Or, in short, unrepentant unbelievers. That's how they viewed tax collectors. That's how they viewed Gentiles. They actually viewed tax collectors even worse than Gentiles because most tax collectors in Jesus' day in the Jewish nation were Jews that were hired by Rome. They hated them. They despised them. So he gives these two examples to show that there shouldn't, there shouldn't be within the church a fellowship with an unrepentant brother or sister that will refuse to repent, that will refuse the discipline process. And we are to put the person out of our fellowship and in doing so, allow him or allow her to feel the shame of the consequences of refusing to repent of sin. To live as an outsider, even if they're a believer, outside of the favor of God's love expressed in the church. But Jesus wasn't agreeing with Jewish prejudices because he loved tax collectors. He loved Gentiles. We're not to, Paul says in Thessalonians, to regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So listen, there is no hatred. There is no disdain. There's nothing but hearts of sorrow that will continually pray for this person. Now we've had to do this twice. We've almost done it three times. But we had to do this twice. One of them was with one of my closest friends in the church. His life is an absolute wreck. He left his wife, got another girl pregnant. He's not who was still married and is still with her. And he's now got a child from her and one from his wife. He looks horrible. 
He is constantly disheveled. So am I half the time. That's not really conclusive. But he's miserable. He's depressed. He's doing drugs. And the last time I've heard anything from him, which was not too long ago, he said, I can't believe I did this to my life. But he will not repent. I still pray for him. I'm still hoping he's going to come back. I'm still waiting for God to maybe give me an opportunity to go back to him. hoping to run into him somewhere in our community so that I can tell him, listen, God loves you. He can forgive you even now, but you've got to go back to like a humble little child and put your hands up to him. And you've got to come back and repent. Now you might be recoiling from this. Maybe this has even happened to you. People that almost always, people that get excommunicated from their church quickly find another church they don't learn their lesson but you might be recoiling from this you might be feeling like wow that's way over the top that's unwarranted and even the world loves better than this are you kidding me this is love this is a direct command of jesus as well let him be to you is a command it's an imperative And understand that we are to do this in the hope of leading that straying sheep back to Christ and fellowship in the church. Yet Jesus, listen, he knows. He knows how difficult this is, so he promises to help us. And this is where our twisted verse comes in. Let me give you point number two and three quick things and then we'll be done. The second one is this. It's not on your outline. The way God helps us carry out church discipline. Let me give you three things that Jesus does from this text. Number one, he gives the church his authority. Now you got to hear that carefully. He gives the church his authority, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we think, what on earth does that mean? It's been horribly misinterpreted. Whole branches of the church have misinterpreted this. And I'm thinking two of them in particular, Catholics and word of faith. Catholics who believe that the ecclesiastical leadership has all the power to actually forgive sins or withhold forgiveness. That's not what this teaches. Or you've got word of faith that says, listen, you've got the power to bend God's will to get your desires. That's not what this says. Binding and loosing were legal terms to the Jewish people. They meant to declare something forbidden or allowed. Now I want you to hear that. To declare something forbidden or allowed. And so you bring it into this context. And what it is, is the authority that Jesus gives to the church to discipline unrepentant people. And if necessary, to loose them to expel them from the from the congregation or to affirm the person upon the repentance and bind them back in this is about expelling or accepting that's what it means to be binding and loosing but the most important part of this is what i'm going to tell you next The Greek tense. Now look at your Bible. That's why I want your Bibles in front of you so you can see these things. Look what it says. Shall be bound. Shall be loosed. Now listen, look at me for a second. This is absolutely critical, you understand, because this is where it twists. The Greek tense means 
something that has already been bound or loosed in heaven and the church exercises God's will so that his will on earth will be done as it is in heaven. Do you understand that? This is not that we've got the authority in ourselves. We have God's authority because he's already decided it in heaven. It's already his will. The person will not repent. You must excommunicate them. You must disfellowship with them or the little bit of sin will permeate the body. And if he repents, this is the father saying, hey, I went after the one. I brought him back to the other 99, and all of heaven rejoices. Bind him, bring him back into membership, love him, show him the fruit of obedience, and swarm him with the love of God. That's what it means to bind and to loose in the tense that Jesus gives. Now let me give you the other way that he helps us. There's two more, I'll be quick. Jesus grants the church his support, verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, he's not saying, he isn't saying to find someone that agrees with you on what you want and then go, go ask God for it. There's no blank check in prayer that could be signed by two believers and cashed in with God. That doesn't work like that. The word, again, he's tying it back into what Jesus had already been teaching about a brother and a sister who sinned and will not listen to correction. So as we follow what Jesus has laid out for us, the steps that he has given to us, seeking to bring that person back who is strayed from God, he's going to fully lend his support to the process. That ought to be comforting because one of the things that keeps us from obeying this, the biggest thing, is fear. The comfort is Jesus is with you. He's not going to ask you to do something that he's not going to be in it with you to do. And it's important because people get really upset when they hear that, listen, the church is the church has just publicly excommunicated the person, and people that don't know the background, they get really upset. And when the community outside of the church hears about it, well, that's not a church that I ever want to go to. But what the church is really doing is they've tried the first three steps, obeying Jesus. The man or the woman did not repent. This is what Jesus commands to do. You do it in love. You don't do it in hatred. But let me give you this final way that God helps us through Jesus. He guarantees the church his presence. Look at verse 20, and this is our scripture, our twisted verse. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, I hope you understand the context now. He's tying it back. Look at verse 16. Can you look in your Bibles? Look at verse 16. Two or three witnesses. Witnesses confirm the facts. And this is utterly, critically crucial and important that you hear me. If you haven't heard anything I've said, this is going to help you untwist this scripture. Witnesses confirm the facts. But in the Old Testament, when they had a capital case involving execution, the witnesses were the first to execute or carry out the penalty for the crime. So if it was death by casting of stones, the witnesses had to pick up the stones first and throw it. It put some force that their witness was right, that it was true. That it was honest. Now you ready? Hear this. 
In the Old Testament, they were the first to cast the stones, but look what Jesus does. Here, they're the first to pray. And what are they praying for? That the little one, the brother or the sister being confronted, would listen and turn back to God, repent, so that there would be great rejoicing in heaven. See, this verse is all about the church obeying Jesus and pursuing the person who sinned against another. To help the sheep make it back to the fold so that they can move on to spiritual maturity. It isn't that when we get a quorum of Christians together, Jesus is finally going to join us. He's with the solitary believer as well. It is the promise of his authority, his support, and his presence in the very difficult act of church discipline that is done to bring back the one who has strayed with the hopes that he or she would reach maturity in Christ. That's what it means when the Bible says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The word of God is beautiful. It is so much more beautiful than when we twist it. And let me end with this. Is there somebody here who has neglected this process? Now listen, you're harming yourself and you're harming the person who sinned against you. And it's likely your fear doing it. Jesus could not be any more clear. Step one, go to your brother or sister. Step two, take one or two witnesses with you that will help facilitate reconciliation. Step three, bring it to the church. Step four, if they still not repent, will not repent, then you must exercise disfellowshipping. Why? Because it's God's love to put that person outside so that he will hunger to be back in. And where two or more are gathered, I am right there in the midst. I will help you do what I am commanding. Amen? Let's pray for help on this.